The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the being prepared inside the United States, we are not at all playing down the capabilities of the Russians, right? We have, as others have described earlier, the shields up activities where we are aggressively working through all elements of the U.S. government to work with the private sector, to share intelligence, to bring everybody's defenses up because it is really important that we are prepared for in our country the possibility, the possibility of Russian attacks on our territory or with our NATO allies. We're also working with them. That is a different question than what is happening in Ukraine, which again, we are trying to avoid a direct conflict between the United States and Russia for as bad as that would be for the entire world, right? I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. We are coming to you from Verify 2022, put on by the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation Cybersecurity Initiative and Aspen Digital in Sausalito, California. And I am here with a truly remarkable panel Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute, Megan Stiefel of the Institute for Security and Technology, and Mika Oyang, well-known to listeners of the Lawfare podcast, currently the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber Defense. Uh, and we are talking cybersecurity and Ukraine, and I am the person on this conversation who has the least interesting things to say about this subject. So I'm gonna to try to keep my own role to an absolute minimum. Corey, get us started. The war in Ukraine has not gone as expected. Uh, you are one of the country's leading defense analysts. How do you assess the current state of the conflict in abstraction from its cyber dimensions? So the current state of the conflict is that Russia is losing. They have already lost the strategic objective of replacing the Ukrainian government and in a lightning quick shock and awe military operation that would impress the world. What we have seen is a shocking collapse, a shocking failure of basic military proficiencies on the part of the Russian army, a shocking willingness to impose atrocities on a civilian population in an attempt to attain their objectives, and a remarkable creativity and resilience and admirable uh, strength of civil society, of the military, and of the government in Ukraine. The first phase of the war Russia failed at, and they sent 50% of their army into Ukraine to attempt to achieve that. The Defense Department has assessed that the Russians have taken at least 25% casualties. And we get the word decimate, that is a synonym for destruction, from the Roman Legion, which is when you take, when a military unit takes a loss of 10%, it is decimated. And the Russians are now scrambling to try and reconstitute, reconstitute units, 
repurpose and re-equip them and fight in the South and in the East to try and hold what Russia invaded in 2014 of the Donbass, Luhansk and Donetsk, and to try and expand it at least to the political boundaries of those regions. Um, and I think they are unlikely to be able to do that. But again, as I gave everybody my nightmare scenarios this morning, I think the question now is how much damage Russia can impose as it loses. And to bring this to the cyber domain, this is a dog that hasn't barked. And I guess I'm interested for your assessment in why it hasn't barked. Uh, we haven't seen Russia lashing out at the rest of the world, at least not effectively, and we haven't seen particularly even significant cyber events in Ukraine itself. Why? Well, I hesitate to answer that question in a room full of actual experts on the subject, but it looks to me like there are four reasons. The first is that the kind of war the Russians thought they were going to fight was a rapid regime change in which they were then going to use the utility system, the telephone system, the, all of the infrastructure that they might otherwise... They didn't want hospitals not to have energy because they were... Because they were going to blow them up. They were liberating Ukraines, right? So they were going to come in as conquerors and use all this stuff to govern the country is one possible explanation. A second possible explanation is that the NSA is actually pretty good at their job and had pre-positioned not just American but also other Western allied teams in to assist Ukraine with threat identification and prosecution starting in the fall, because we knew this was coming for a while. A third possible explanation is they just haven't started yet, and we're, we could well see it now, because, you know, once you reveal your cyber weapons, they can be used against you, they can, you can be pulled out of the networks. We saw the FBI pulling malware from systems, getting approval to pull malware from systems. Um, so it could be we're just seeing the beginning of it. And I think the fourth possibility is that it's just easier to blow stuff up. And they, once Russia ceased to believe that they were succeeding, they just started blowing stuff up. They threatened nuclear power plants. They threatened other energy infrastructure and so we could see a lot more of that kind of crude and civilian tragedy. Okay, so Mika, I want to be very careful about how I ask this question. What exactly have we done uh, <laughs> okay, to assist? Okay, for people just listening who can't see Ben's mischievous smile, he was not trying to be careful about that. Uh, no, I, I, jokes aside, I actually do want to be careful how I ask this question. Corey posited a, uh, a certain level of U.S. involvement or uh, Western involvement in mitigating the effects of Russian cyber warfare. What, if anything, can you tell us about the degree to which the U.S. has been involved or has been assisting in mitigating the effects of Russian attacks? Um, so let's just be clear, uh, without getting into any operational details, you know, how disappointing. Um, the, the United States has been very forward-leaning in how we have been providing capacity to Ukraine and the weapon systems that we are providing and rallying our allies to provide them with the armaments they need to be able to preserve and in other parts of their country restore their sovereignty. Um, but this is very clearly not a fight that the U.S. is trying to engage in directly with Russia. So we are trying to assist them preserve their sovereignty. We did have teams that went in in the opening day uh, before in the run-up to the conflict to help. We had hunt teams on the ground in Ukraine to help identify malware and help them with that. We're not the only ones. American technology industries were also very helpful to the Ukrainians in the beginning of this conflict um, and currently to this day working with them to help them 
defend their networks. But this is not something where we are going to risk a broader direct conflict between the United States and Russia, and for all that that might risk. And is that what, when you say American teams have been on the ground, that can mean a lot of things, right? It can mean everything from, as Corey described, sort of NSA, you know, operational capacity. It can mean, you know, Microsoft sending people to, you know, what can you tell us about the capacity that we've provided? Is it is it sort of specifically military stuff, or is it just how to how to defend a country against the cyber dimensions of 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 an attack? So I would say that since you know Ukraine has been Russia's testing ground for cyber attack for quite some time, so they have had significant experience of their own in trying to figure out how to do these things. But when we talk about teams on the ground, we are talking about cyber command teams. We do this around the world where invited in by host country, we can help them with what we know about adversary malware in a intelligence-driven way, identify malware and remediate it on their networks. These are difficult activities to pull off. So our ability to help them with what we know is is significant. And I, I think we have, you know, wanted to support them through this. So uh, Megan, Mika also mentions the involvement of U.S. industry in, in this effort. And it, I, I forget who reported the other day. I think it was uh, that, that Microsoft had, had identified several dozen uh, cyber attacks in, in Ukraine. My impression is that U.S. industry is doing a lot and the platforms are doing a lot. What do we know about the degree to which the dog that didn't bark is, you know, on a leash that's being held to some degree by, by U.S. companies? Well, you mentioned Microsoft and, and several of the other platforms have been fairly open about the degree to which they're working to keep the dog on leash, as it were. One of the most recent was this report from Microsoft uh, a couple days ago with the, the, the discussion around uh, they had used legal authorities having identified six separate actors and over the years, not, not for all these cases, but they've launched 237 operations over, over the past couple of weeks and months. And it's clear, I think, that... So I'm not totally of the view that the dog hasn't barked. I do think that it is this idea that there's been a good deal of preparation, not only by DOD, but even since the time of NotPetya, um, there have been grants from USAID and others across the U.S. Uh, government working to try and better uh, equip the Ukrainian community to withstand these types of testing ground types of activities. But I'm pleased with the degree to which Microsoft has talked about the level of engagement that it's had, because I think, among other things, it raises the profile and the awareness that there are, this is, there is something going on here. It's not that it's just easy and we haven't had to try and protect these networks. It is, uh, we are, you know, Microsoft is leveraging all of its capabilities here to help uh, buttress democracy on, on the digital side. But we've had Twitter and others talking about downgrading uh, posts from Russian uh, governmental actors. Some have been removed from, from certain platforms. Um, and so it is this kind of collaborative effort. I do sort of wonder about the evolution of the ability to coordinate following the elections and kind of how, whether and how much that was helpful in help thinking about how to, bring, again, bring the private sector together with the government in managing the, the situation in Ukraine. Yeah. Ben, I want to take a little issue, though, with the analogy of the dog that yep. didn't bark. Because I think it is all about the expectation of what you think that bark should be. And I think for a very long time, we have expected that that bark would blow out everyone's eardrums, that it would be at a level of catastrophe that would be strategic and make a difference. And it's not to say that the dog is not barking, but maybe it's just barking at the level of a normal dog. All right, so let's talk about that. Is... Uh, is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber saying that cyber war is overrated? I think that what we're seeing right now is that it is not that the cyber portion of this is not the kind of analogy that has 
shocked the conscience and changed the world, as some prior analogies might have suggested. I think one of the challenges about cyber is that the impact that one could have by disrupting a cyber system is that its impact is limited to the reliance that you have on that system. Another possibility. So I love the, the exploration of what's the right metaphor for cyber war. <laughs> Uh, and there's a terrific exhibit of the performance artist Lori Anderson at the Hirshhorn in Washington right now. And one of the things it talks about is she writes music for dogs that is that is at the level they can hear and we cannot. And she performs it uh, and distributes <laughs> headphones for the humans so that you can hear what the dogs are hearing. <laughs> And that's what I think I just heard Mika say. <laughs> I, so instead of flying sharks with lasers as, as cyber war, it's going to be music the dogs can hear and the rest of us cannot. All right, but, but, but Corey, so you're, the, def you're, you're the, the strategic defense analyst among us. As Mika just points out, for 10 years or more, we've been primed to believe that the next conflict, the next major state-to-state -state conflict was going to be qualitatively different because the power grid was going to turn off and uh, everybody on a pacemaker was going to suddenly drop dead. Missiles wouldn't uh, be able to navigate right. targets. And so how much of that should we look back at and say it was all nonsense and how much of it should we say maybe a little bit overstated? And how much should we say, hey, we learned from those warnings and developed significant capacity to do the things that Mika just described, to send teams in and, and mitigate? Like, what, when you look back on what we expected cyber warfare to be versus what it is, what's your, what's your conclusion from I that? I think it's way too soon to draw any of those conclusions. And I think the context of the fact that we're not direct combatants, we're fighting a proxy war in Ukraine against the Russians. And that gives both us and them incentives to behave with restraint in terms of unleashing flying sharks with lasers on each other. That might not be the case in other strategic circumstances. I mean, in a war between the US and China over Taiwan, there would be none of those incentives of restraint. So you could see fighter planes dropping like stones out of the sky because I don't want us to ever be in the position of failing to anticipate how these tools at their sharpest and most dangerous edge could affect warfare. We're very close to drawing bad lessons from two months of experience in constrained circumstances. Megan, you're nodding. Do, I mean, is that, are, 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 are you not, like, I, I mean, I, I got to say, I, at the risk of being the person who draws bad lessons from two months of experience, <laughs> I, I, I'm tempted to look at this and say, well, it looks like the Hewlett Cyber Initiative's, you know, like, it's done. Where, you know, that, like, cyber war is not a thing. No, I, I think absolutely, we're, we, it is very too, it's far too soon to tell. I think the points that you made this morning about, you know, how do you go out with a bang as you as you uh, kind of claim victory, even though you've you've been defeated, is also a possibility on on the so-called cyber side of things or the cyber domain. Although I take issue with that phrase, but anyways, that's that's a different conversation. And so we don't we just just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean that it won't. And you can you know we have to again continue to, to observe the signals that we're getting from the administration, um, and it is a steady signal that there is. I think a high degree of intelligence that suggests that that something of, of a larger bite is is highly possible. Um, we certainly know there is a capability. The question is, at what point will they decide to deploy it? So and so, against what? So let me ask you something related to that, which is, you know, I, I we have always understood the Russians on the intelligence side to be very very strong cyber actors. And is it possible that we've just confused or conflated a level of expertise and proficiency in the intelligence sphere with the same level of expertise in the 
warfare sphere when those are actually really different propositions? I wish that that were the case. I don't think that it is. Okay. Um, I mean, I, again, I, you know, just uh, observing what I read in, in kind of in what's come out of the administration, and, and you know, also thinking about the degree to which there have been. It's these are joint collaborative posts, largely with our or, or reports, largely with our Five Eyes partners, um, who are all singing from the same sort of collective sheet of music that this is a problem. To me, doesn't suggest that it's just limited to a significant intelligence capability and capacity. That it is could be quite significant uh, on the offensive side as well, and so. All right, so Mika. Uh, yeah, I, I don't mean to say that, like, you know, just to be clear, I think that what I'm trying to get at is the idea, the difference between expectation and observation. And I think what we are, we are observing things now, right? There is what we estimate, and we estimated that, right, many people estimated that Russia would take keys in 96 hours, right? I think that there is a calibration going on with some real-world experience because it's the first time that we've seen, really, a cyber-capable adversary in this kind of conflict. We're not done studying, just saying. I think it's important not to get carried away by expectation, and we want to understand what we see. All right, so I want to unpack that with you. Uh, it seems to me you, you've, you've just said two really significant things. I want to treat them separately. One is that there is a significant gap between our expectations and what the Russians have delivered. The second is that we are studying this and learning things from it. And so I want to take those in turn. What was it that we expected to see? I, I know on the kinetic side, we expected tanks in Kiev and you know, 60, 70 hours. What was it on the cyber side that you expected to see and didn't? And uh, I'll, let's get to the learnings subsequently. Yeah, so I, uh, look, cyber, indications and warning in the cyber domain are different than in the physical domain, right? You could see tanks on Google Maps outside the country, you don't have the same indications and warning in the cyber domain. So the kind of indications and warning that we might see in this domain are just, it's different. So indications and warning and what we expect is drawn from past experience here. And I think what we looked at in 2016 and things like that, and what was done to Ukraine sort of set an expectation. And I think that people assumed that, that, that cyber had the capability to change will and very clearly the will of the Ukrainian people has not been changed via cyber, but also has not been changed via kinetic. The will of the, America, uh, the Ukrainian people to, to continue to, preserve, to fight for their sovereignty has been incredible in this conflict. So I think expectations right, is a challenge, and we don't have the same kind of clear indications that we had in the kinetic domain. Um, so it's a little hard to... like they're, they're not quite the same, but I think people assumed more based on what we had seen before based on our experience with Russia. And we are learning, but the other thing is, right, we cannot do an after-action report yet because the action, as I said this morning, is not yet complete. So we are learning, but I think we can't draw any conclusions yet because we are not at a conclusory stage. On the other hand, we're always in a preparatory stage. Absolutely. And... Your position in particular is a weird, a, a weird duck in that it's, you know, you're preparing for conflicts of a sort that we've never had or that we kind of have, but we don't. And then you watch a major adversary wildly underperform in the space. What do you do with that? Can I offer an observation about that? So the, the hard thing about intelligence estimates about warfare is that you can't really tell who's going to be good at this until they do it, right? And so we're wrong about all sorts of stuff about warfare in advance. And the honest-to-God truth is the, the only way you know is by seeing who wins and who loses. And I was genuinely shocked at how bad the Russian military is. I would have thought they were 400% better than they are. They can't do basic stuff. They haven't established air superiority over the country in two months. 
despite having all of the means to do so, they appear to be so fearful of flying into Ukrainian territory that they're trying to fire standoff weaponry from their aircraft, from inside Russian territory. And, and we and others are now giving the Ukrainians the ability to target things inside Russian territory. So that's going to change the dynamic of war a lot. And the Ukrainians are now shifting from being a sparky defender in home territory to moving into an offensive, much more traditional tank warfare kind of battle. We have no idea whether the Russians are going to be good at that or whether the Ukrainians are. The only way you really know is to watch what happens and then pretend like you knew it all along. <laughs> so so is, that, is that the answer from a DOD point of view? I, <laughs> I don't really... Um, I want to come back to what you were asking earlier about sort of how we are in a well preparatory mode, right? Like this, it is sort of, it is a challenge, right? I want to separate what's happening in Ukraine and what is going on there from what Megan was talking about and what we are concerned about in the United States. Because, right, just to correct you a little bit, my job title is actually Deputy Secretary of Defense for Cyber Policy, not just Cyber Defense. Ah, sorry. And so, like... It means it encompasses both, right? It encompasses the away game and the home game. And so we are involved in both sides of that conversation. And in the being prepared inside the United States, we are not at all playing down the capabilities of the Russians, right? We have, as others have described earlier, the shields up activities where we are aggressively working through all elements of the U.S. government to work with the private sector, to share intelligence, to bring everybody's defenses up, because it is really important that we are prepared for in our country the possibility, the possibility of Russian attacks on our territory or with our NATO allies. We're also working with them. That is a different question than what is happening in Ukraine which again, we are trying to avoid a direct conflict between the United States and Russia for as bad as that would be for the entire world, right? So, so there are separate questions. But I think there are also really important things that we are learning about this conflict, about what it means for us, the Department of Defense, as we prepare to fight and win the nation's wars and the role that cyber plays in that conflict. We have... I think you've seen some reporting on this, written a national defense strategy that talks about integrated deterrence. And it talks about how we are using all of our elements together, how we are integrating cyber into our war planning. And that is different than this concept of cyber war, of like cyber on cyber, that there's just this thing happening out there, that cyber is a part of all of this. And so as we talk about integrated deterrence, it is that there are elements of conventional power that may deter cyber attacks. There may be cyber responses that come in response to kinetic attacks. It is not necessarily one for one in domain. It is right, how do we think about all elements of national power and best tools to respond to the potential, the potential hazards that we are facing? I want to ask you about the disparity, ask all of you actually, about the disparity between the way you just described this, which is complicated and integrated and very far from describing, you know, a kind of water gun war in which you replace the water guns with keyboards. And the way a lot of people report about it, which is, you know, sort of imagining a kind of cyber Armageddon in, in which the world is suddenly different because we have integrated uh, systems driving all parts of our economy. And I want to ask you whether the journalism has been bad. No, I actually don't think the journalism has been bad. I personally would settle for the Department of Defense executing its Title X responsibilities well instead of developing 
an ostensibly new concept that requires everybody to have seamless coordination, because I think we as a country are incapable of that. And so if you have a strategy reliant on it, you have a failed strategy. But I think actually all of us are learning how to do this, right? We have N equals one on major wars in which cyber has been an integral component. And so we should be very cautious about extrapolating from what we have seen so far. And Everybody's being so responsible on the panel, <laughs> re refusing to draw reckless, rash conclusions. The, the journalism has been every bit as good as the conceptual thinking in the academic community, every bit as good as the policy formulation across three administrations on this. It's just that this is new and we're all groping towards an understanding and we just don't have enough data to be able to make sweeping characterizations. Megan, you've got a room full of journalists, a room full of cyber uh, analysts and, and folks. Who do you want to take a shot at? Who has, has the journalism been, been, been alarmist? I don't... I don't think so. I mean, I know you want me to say that it has, or like it's probably... No, I'm, I'm, I'm no, actually think, yeah, interested in the degree of consensus that we have that, that I, I actually agree with you, but go on. Well, I mean, again, I'm sort of having been in the seat where you want people, you want the, your, the senior level folks to be talking more about cyber, and it was kind of, there were too many other things and it wasn't the big issue, and now they're talking about it more. Um, I'm similarly pleased to see that the, the kind of evolution and maturation within the journalism community and the, and the ability to characterize, I think, accurately what what they are getting from uh, those whom they are engaging, whether it be at uh, an industry or in the administration. So I think we still have a long ways to go. I think this whole conversation about you have, there is more that could be said by by the private sector and what they are seeing and what they are doing that is not constrained by um, the concern over sources and methods and all of those types of things that, that could, I think, help further inform the, the conversation about, you know, the capabilities of Russia, but also how much of a, of, um, we still have at risk at home, um, and how, so I would encourage, you know, there's some Google people here, um, you know, to the extent that we can continue to, to have this, this more public dialogue about, mm -hmm. These are significant resources that we are having to deploy. And imagine having to deploy them in multiple theaters, if you will. Um, so Microsoft can do what it's doing in, in uh, Ukraine or for Ukraine. Could it do the same thing for Taiwan? Could it do the same thing for, you know, what's going on? We haven't talked about So Ethiopia. we need a two-war strategy from American businesses. <laughs> you know. So Mika, how about you? How, um, you know, it's always a, uh, a particular pleasure for officials uh, to, get to get to critique the journalists. So here you go. Here's your chance. Um, I think that this is a particularly difficult area to report on, in part because for very important reasons, the activities of the government are not themselves something that we can openly talk about. It makes it difficult to report accurately on this. And the other challenge that I think is that there are a lot of places where, for people who work in national security, we have these pre-existing mental maps of what war looks like. And I think it's important to be careful about how we import those mental maps into conversations about cyber. Nice point. So we have these conversations about cyber weapons. And it gives people the idea that there's some kind of cyber JDAM, right? That you build a thing and you can fire it over and over and over again. But being able to conduct cyber operations requires an intimate knowledge of the system that you are targeting. And systems are complex and they are not necessarily universal and they are frequently changing as people change configurations, patch, upgrade. So the idea that you can build an arsenal of cyber weapons and that gives you this idea that like we have a warehouse somewhere of a whole bunch of cyber JDAMs is not a good mental analogy to use when we're talking about cyber. 
So I think that there's some real challenges when it comes to that, right? You cannot say enter into negotiations with an adversary about arsenal reductions in cyber. Because if you showed up with your list of cyber weapons and they showed up with their list of cyber weapons and you tried to negotiate down, everyone would just take each other's lists, go home and patch, right? Like there are certain things that do not work in the analogies of war to the cyber domain. And I think this is a challenge not just for journalism. Mm -hmm. I think it's a challenge for the entire national security policy community that understands war very well. But this area is a challenge because the technology is different. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. All right, so I want to go to questions from you all in a moment, but I would be remiss if I didn't throw out a final uh, thesis or or hypothesis uh, in my effort to promote many different recklessly uh, hasty explanations for two months of experience um, in an N of one. So Megan, start with you on this one. One possible explanation is that the other thing that we've been hearing for 15 years, which is that offense outpaces defense in this domain uh, relentlessly, has actually turned out not to be quite as simply true, and that a lot of people, having heard the catastrophizing, which may not have been catastrophizing, it may have been an accurate prediction of uh, Armageddon in the absence of some very significant set of interventions, a bunch of people from the military side to the strategic side to the industry side engaged in exactly that set of interventions on a uh, not quite society-wide basis, but on a broad basis, and actually collectively put both Uh, Ukrainians and domestically uh, a lot of American institutions in a much, much stronger defensive position than they were in not that long ago. Um, And, you know, while we were all fretting that not enough people were using multi-factor authentication, in fact, a lot of people use multi-factor authentication and, you know, that, that, that the defensive side actually... Uh, is overperforming here. So uh, before we, is there any reason to be interested in that as an explanation? I think we're, we're, we are fortunate to be having, living through this experience without having to actually live through it. So we are, I think there is, there's a tremendous amount to be learned by both, as Mika has said, DOD and, and, and the, the, the cyber planners out there for how DOD will conduct these types of activities and what it needs to be prepared for, but also on the industry side, because we we now have the strong sense, as I've said from the administration, that there is the potential for something pretty significant, but we we now know this as opposed to being surprised by it. So we've had the opportunity to, to I think, kind of evolve those relationships that put us in the position to know, in part at least, how great, how significant the risk is. But I, I, my perspective from where I sit now is that Sorry, but I still think we tend to get lucky in, in many cases, uh, too many cases, and that the, uh, the ability for uh, the private sector and the government to do operational collaboration at, what was the phrase? I can't remember Keith Alexander had, uh, but essentially the speed of light is, is, I think we have tremendous room for growth, and I'm very glad, as I said, didn't articulate well, that we are learning through, living through this experience, not in our backyard, but in Ukraine. Um, that, that were that to be kind of forced upon us right now, I think we would be, not to, to cut anyone, but I think we have, I, I'm, I'm hopeful for the defenders, but I think uh, I'm not overly hopeful. Sorry to be <laughs> dour about it, but. So Mika, you, uh, uh, you, you, as you corrected me, you were responsible for both defense and offense. <laughs> which hat, with which hat do you wear the, how do you have the advantage these days? Look, I think the challenge on defense is that we're talking about the protection of Americans and the protection of the capability of the Department of Defense. And I guess... As I think about it, Ben, what I would say is the best defense is a good offense. Corey? So my favorite article ever written about American national security policy was in The Atlantic by James Fallows in 2009. And it had some super boring title like How America Can Rise Again. But he uses, he had come from being uh, the Atlantic's 
uh, correspondent in Beijing for five years and coming back to the United States in the midst of all of our anxiety about managing a rising uh, predatory China is when he wrote the article. And he has this fabulous metaphor. He uses the Jeremiah from the Bible. Right? Jeremiah always fears he is failing God and that's why he is beloved of God. And he uses it as a metaphor for the fact that the mistake America's adversaries make is giving us time to adapt because we're not good at having it right. We're good at getting it right. And I think this is a long way around of saying, Ben, that you are exactly right. Our adversaries have given us time to have the gasping, oh, Jesus, we're terrible at this. It's going to have awful consequences. And we start to bombard it with resources, with intellectual effort, with prioritization in how we think about hard problems. And that's where you get persistent engagement. That's where you get all of the ways in which we are thinking about how do we blunt an offensive advantage and at least trap it in a net that makes it less effective. And I do think that's where we are. I'm, Ukrainians have done that brilliantly. It's not that the Russians haven't tried shock and awe cyber. It's that Ukraine has been fighting on this front for some time. They've figured out how to get good at it. We've watched and gotten better by uh, how they have gotten good at it. We've gotten pretty good at it. So it may be that the cyber war turns out not to be tornadoes of hospitals power going out, but it's the day in, day out infantry bayonet fight that becomes a common element of modern warfare. All right, we're gonna to go to uh, audience questions. Uh, Eli. Um, thank you for a great discussion. I, I, I wanted to build off uh, a, a, the conversation about why it's hard to report and talk about offensive cyber. I think to challenge Mika a little bit, I'm no fan of, of, of analogies to the nuclear domain or other warfighting domains vis-a-vis -vis cyber and accept the premise that there are fundamental technological differences. At the same time, why is it not possible to have a more informed conversation about the strategic impacts of the capabilities, what the red lines are, how DOD and the USG is thinking about using these capabilities and to what ends? I mean, presumably the Russians know what the high-profile targets are. Presumably they know what networks you're trying to compromise. Presumably they have some sense even of the technical capacity of some U.S. capabilities. And we don't need to go into like those, right? But, but it seems like we're still struggling a little bit to have a slightly deeper conversation and throw off the shackles of sort of cyber capabilities emanating from the IC, from sort of some back room and skunk works and everything. And just, just to challenge a little bit more, like why can't we go there a little bit more with the American people and try to create a broader societal consensus about like, how do we use these abilities? Yeah. Who should authorize them? Some of those conversations that then over time we can get more comfortable and talk more specifically. Yeah, um, Eli, I really appreciate the question because I think one of the challenges, you know, I've watched the evolution of uh, cyber policy in the US government for quite some time going back into the Bush administration and the CNCI. Um, and, and we have been undergoing an evolution in how we think about cyber. When you think about the Bush administration and CNCI, it was predominantly a system and defensive approach. We talked about like, how do we understand, you know, the vulnerabilities are net networks. General Alexander wanted to like censor up everything. Like, but it was all about right, defending the systems, right? The 2018 cyber strategy in the previous administration, Defend Forward and Persistent Engagement, was a very clear articulation of the need not to just think about defending our systems, but we had to go out into the world and meet the adversary. But we were not particularly descriptive about what exactly that meant. But I think it was a very important watershed for the nation to say that, that again, we couldn't just defend and like let them take all the infinite numbers of shots on goal, but we had to go out and like, you can't just have a goalie, you actually have to have people out there and you have to go out, you know, across the center line. One of the challenges that my office has to wrestle with is that we're responsible for writing the next DOD cyber strategy. And so I think 
part of the challenge that we wrestle with is like, how do we characterize what that means, what that direction means for the American people in a way that gives them some sense of what we do and don't do without revealing so much that the adversary is able to then figure out how to defend against that. Um, and, and I do think that that's something that is a challenge given the clandestine nature of all of this activity. And it's also a challenge in terms of like how we coordinate with allies and partners, how we signal and develop strategic stability with the adversary. There may be cyber attacks happening out there that like I just think is normal like what's wrong with my IT people glitchiness? Or I could get like super paranoid and be like, oh my God, everything is the Russians. Like, I think that there's a challenge in, in terms of understanding exactly what is happening out there, which makes a lot of this hard to talk about with clarity because in some ways we don't have perfect visibility. So I don't know like exactly how we have that conversation, but I agree with you that we have to be clearer than we have been about how we use cyber and what it's for. Um, but I think that the new national defense strategy that talks about integration of cyber into our warfighting capability is another important thing that we have to talk about, right? It is not this domain over here where like there's all the cyber pew pewing happening separate from the real world it is part and parcel of how we think about those things but the other thing about cyber in its evolution you know in 2018 we went said we were going out into the world that's still about systems and at the end of the day there are human beings, fingers on keyboards, and ordering people with fingers on keyboards. And we also have to think about what is the strategic impact on the mindset of those people, not just on their systems. Because if we stay just focused on the systems, then people will remediate, mitigate, and come back again. At the end of the day, this is about strategic outcomes. And we have to think about what cyber's role is in all of that. One thing I might add, Eli, is that military strategies tend to get more offensive as militaries believe they get better at what they're doing. And I think you have seen the migration from the, oh, Jesus, we're terrible at this, to the, hey, we're actually pretty good at this. Hey, we can actually... I mean, I thought the fact that NSA permitted the information into the public realm that we're resident on Russia's um, utilities networks as a way, happened seven, eight months ago or, or something, at, as a deterrent that we too can take offensive action and that knowledge should be stabilizing. I think you see a growing confidence in American military cyber operations that we're good enough about at this that we don't simply have to play defense because in military force, almost always, as Mika said, the best defense is a better offense. Dina. Yeah, hi, Dina Temple-Raston from uh, Click Here Podcast and the Record. And um, I have two questions, actually. The first is I'm not quite sure which caliber pew, pew is and whether that's really going to translate to a, a podcast, but it's a definitional issue. The vocabulary that we have between someone who just has some sort of incursion to explore, whether that's a nation state or criminals, versus the vocabulary we have, someone's actually going to go and break something or tries to break something, is identical. I, at least as somebody who's a journalist who's done this now for a bit, we say hack or attack. And they're the same thing, even though, frankly, they're, they're completely different and their motivations are different and um, we do it too. So I'm just wondering, and, and all three of you actually, I think could, could, could speak to this. Can you talk a little bit about how we make these definitions and these distinctions? Because as we get more sophisticated in the cyber realm, those are the very distinctions that journalists like all of us are going to have to be making. Yeah, I think this is actually a really important distinction and it actually is a distinction with a difference for us in the Department of Defense, right? The ability to gain access to a network, to gain information 
without disturbing the operations of that network and without the network owner and operator knowing that you are there is called intelligence gathering. And it is something that nations do. It is a very different thing to go in and change something about the way the network operates. But there are often times, and I was guilty of this too as a commenter in the media, of of exactly that sort of blurring of the solar winds attack. But if you really think about it, what that was was a very sophisticated attempt to gain access, the purpose of which, the ultimate purpose of which I think we will never know because the incursion was stopped fairly early on in the process, right? But it does make a difference about why you are trying to get access to a network. I too think the distinction is important, but I also think we should acknowledge we do both of those things. We don't just do intelligence gathering. We do cyber operations to dismantle or destroy, force Iranian nuclear networks to self-destruct. So we do both of those things, but there's an important distinction. And one of them is intelligence gathering and the other is an act of war. And so being clear about the rules under which each of those things are permissible, the legal framework, the framework of international accountability, the rules we are, precedents we are establishing that we're then going to have to live with when other people get the capability to do things. We, we think too little about those distinctions. So thank you. I think that's so important. I, I would also say to, um, to my dear friend, Corey, um, not every cyber operation that changes something is an act of war. An act of war is a political decision made on behalf of the person or the, the nation that was affected about whether or not it is in fact something they're, for which they're going to go to war. That said, like, there may be things that are not even at the level of an armed attack, right? Not every armed attack is an act of war. Not every cyber effect operation is an armed attack. There are gradations even within that. And cool. so, um, right, there, right, there are things that could be experienced as just glitchiness. And so I think it's important that we understand that there is a range of things because if we assume that every cyber effect is at the level of an armed attack, we think about the risk and the authorization of that very differently than if we think about, if we think about the, the full range of possible activities. But I, but, but I want to focus, Megan, if we could, on what I take to be Dina's question, which is, like, why don't, why haven't we developed in the common discussion a more sophisticated and elaborated vocabulary for these things? That, you know, if, if, if I mean... I broke into uh, the Hewlett Foundation and stole uh, secret papers. Pardon me, all you Hewlett people. I blew up the Hewlett Foundation. We don't use the word attack to describe both, right? And if, if, I, if, I, if I mean I launched a military assault on the building, you use a completely different vocabulary. But somehow in cyber, we just use the phrase cyber attack to refer to exploitations, to malicious intrusions designed to cause damage, to all kinds of things that have completely different uh, interstate implications and, and, uh, and that states would reasonably respond to completely differently. And I, I, I'm, pardon me, Dina, if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I... But, I, I, I'm I'm hung up on the question of why the vocabulary, like in the industry, the vocabulary is much more sophisticated. But why hasn't that translated into the way we talk about it in a more, uh, you know, public setting? Well, I, this is where we can um, invite the assistance of our journalistic friends. But I, I mean, it, and not to say cybering is hard. So it's it's hard to articulate it. I mean, I think part of it goes also back to the question that, that Eli has posed twice now today about how can we talk about this a bit, this being offensive cyber operations. Um, and you think about the law, like 1030, you know, did you gain unauthorized access or did you exceed authorized access and all these other phrases that, you know, the average citizen is like, 
What is that? A protected computer, what does that mean? So I think we do need to, along the sort of transparency and accountability kind of conversation of, of industry helping to talk more about what it sees and what it does, that too, I think, can be, you know, help uh, inform the, the debate and the dialogue and hopefully kind of raise the overall sort of civic awareness of these things that we depend on for everything now in a little bit more sort of nuanced and educated manner than hacking and attacking. The other thing I would say, the one place where the nuclear analogy might hold is that it took, what, almost 20 years into the nuclear age before we actually had a discreet and sophisticated way to talk about specific and differential elements of the problem. So it could just be we're actually on the natural trajectory of developing that kind of vocabulary because we're, we're thinking our way through the problem still. We're going to take quick two question. more questions and then wrap. <laughs> thank, thank you so much. Quick question. We had some gr great conversations today about the cyber-enabled information warfare happening in, in Russia and Ukraine. And I'm wondering, should the U.S. develop a more comprehensive, concrete uh, doctrine around information warfare, and what could that look like? Uh, to Ukraine again, we're seeing unprecedented action on behalf of private companies, whether that be restricting of Russian Twitter accounts or restricting of financial services. What implications, both good and bad, does this have on the future of private companies acting alongside or not alongside military and state actors? So I love that question. And it does seem to me that just as civil society is the genuine superpower of free societies, that a lot of the ways that private actors can affect warfare are huge advantages for free societies because you have to win the argument, you have to win the political argument at home about a war in a free society. So free societies tend to be slow to make commitments and enduring in the making of the, in the execution of them because you've had to have the domestic political argument. And in every free society I can think of, right? So one of the great ways school teachers torture um, students, and, and I love to do that, is to point out that democracies fight a lot of wars. They don't fight wars against each other. Um, and there's only one prominent example of two democratic societies fighting war. Anybody know the answer? Britain and Iceland in 1973 or something, seven shots fired. It's called the Cod War. It's about fishing rights. Other than Iceland that- Iceland won. And Iceland won. Yes, that's right. Um, other than that, free societies tend to fight wars against ideological challengers. And that gives a huge advantage for the mobilization of civil society. And whereas in repressive societies, people get coerced either into passivity or into activity. What we are seeing in Ukraine is, you know, we didn't see the tornado of cyber we were expecting, but we are seeing a tornado of autonomous, independent action by companies that want either the reputational or the business advantages of siding with one or the other, principally siding with Ukraine. Chef Jose Andres is running food convoys to Odessa. If one of those things gets attacked, you're probably going to have the, the NATO governments dragged into defending them. So you can actually, I can envision autonomous civil society action drawing government activity into further commitment in the war. And that, that's not new in warfare, but it's certainly new in industrial age warfare. So from 1864 forward, this is a new development and it dramatically advantages free societies. Any thoughts on information warfare before we wrap? I just think one of the challenges is, you know, this is as we think about information warfare, I think there is a contest happening in the information domain, and I think it's important to understand like why why that is happening, and that you know Russia, while it maintains strong control over its information domain within its own territory, it's very clearly not been able to 
set the information stage in the way that it wants in the rest of the world. I think information warfare is a little bit complicated because it suggests that there's an equivalency in the kind of information in terms of what's going on here. And as Corey so eloquently pointed out, in democratic and free societies that requires truth, objectivity, and accountability for its governance, we want information and facts about what is happening to get out. And the idea is the truth will allow people to make up their own minds about what is happening and demand accountability from their government. Um, and so in trying to make sure that the truth can get to people for accountability's sake, right, that is a perspective that we in the United States believe in, that is a perspective that the Ukrainians believe in, um, it is not a perspective that the Russians believe in. But warfare suggests a reciprocity and an equivalency among the two sides that I think is not the same. That said, I think that there are things, you know, the Department of Defense, we always think about things in like warfare terms, which is a challenge in cyber, but also sometimes helpful. In that, when you think about information warfare, I think there are multiple pieces of this. You have to understand the information, misinformation or disinformation. You have to understand the delivery and dissemination system and you have to understand the terrain in which it lands. And all of those things are different. If I whisper in a room by myself that the moon landing is false, it doesn't mean anything. Or if I whisper in a room by myself that vaccines don't work, it doesn't mean anything. If that the delivery system matters, and if you are inclined to believe in scientific evidence, it doesn't matter if I say that because your mental terrain is such that that message is not receptive to you. In order to try and convince people, you have to understand the message, the delivery system, and the terrain. And I think that that is a challenge. As we think about misinformation and disinformation, we have to think about all three of those things. We are going to leave it there. Corey Shockey, Megan Stiefel, and secret by herself, alone at night, moon landing denier, <laughs> Mika Oyang. Thank you so much for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Look, folks, some of you are material supporters of Lawfare, and we love you very deeply, and we appreciate it very much. Some of you are still not. You guys heard ads on this podcast episode. You guys don't get to come to Lawfare Live. You should fix that. www.patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always... Thanks for listening.